0: Let's pray, and we're going to open our Bibles to Mark 15 uh, and see what God has for us today. Our Father, our God, our Lord, and our King, we ask that today as we open your word together that you would grant to us that in your wounds we may find a real safety, that in those brutal stripes inflicted upon you we would find the lasting cure That in your pain, we would come to know eternal peace. And that in your cross, we would in fact hear the triumph cry, victory call, it is finished. And though we will not go all the way to the empty tomb because it is such a critical part of this gospel, we also pray that in your resurrection, we would see our triumph is woven into your triumph and that, in short order, there would be crowns of righteousness each of us would share in the glories of your eternal kingdom. Bring these realities to our hearts that we may experience them fully in your presence one day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What news do you live by? What headlines? When we began this series in the fall of 2018, and we have taken breaks along the way, by the way. Do you even remember this? The Kavanaugh hearings were underway. Hurricane Florence, and then closely on the heels, Hurricane Michael had devastated the Southeast. And one of those things, I, I didn't put a slide up, but this may have been one of the most disconcerting pieces of news that came out. in and out had just announced that they would not expand east of Texas. Those were the headlines in the fall of 2018. It seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? And as a matter of fact, those headlines almost feel trivial in comparison to the headlines that we're faced with right now, right? COVID, protests, unlike uh, even my 83-year-old father and I were talking on the phone a couple days ago, and he said, I've never seen it like this before. I said, Dad, in the 60s, uh, this was shortly before I was born he and my mother and my two older sisters lived in Birmingham. That was a a, a a center of protests. And he said, "What I'm seeing right now feels like way beyond Birmingham." And then we have these presidential campaigns underway. Which, I mean, who knows? You know, we needed good news in the fall of 2018. We need good news today, don't we? We actually have to decide. What news do I live by? Well, if you go all the way back to chapter 1 in Mark's gospel, and you're welcome to do that for just a moment. I won't spend any time at all there, but remember how he opened this gospel. He said it is the beginning of the gospel or the good news. Remember how we talked about that term gospel just simply means good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in this series, we followed Mark's account. And hes he hasn't told us all the news there is to record about Jesus' life and now his death today and resurrection to follow, but he has given us Uh, most important pieces of this good news. And as we've followed Mark's account of the life and ministry of Christ, we've heard the Father declare over him, you are my my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We've also been to the other end of the spectrum where the beloved disciple Peter denied any association with Jesus whatsoever as he was being arrested and betrayed and condemned to die. We've watched in awe as Jesus delivered demoniacs people that whole communities were fearful of and could not be bound or brought under anybody's control, but Jesus comes and speaks a word, and the demons flee, and a a man is restored. We've watched in awe as he's cleansed the lepers by his personal touch, healed the hemorrhaging woman of an affliction that that not only uh, weakened her physically, but isolated her spiritually for many, many years. We watched him raise a little girl from the dead. We saw him call a a ragamuffin group of disciples together, people that most of us would quickly and easily overlook. These were not the significant ones in, in the community, not the movers and shakers, but they were the ones that Jesus handpicked. And he walked with them for three years and taught them and poured himself into them, empowered them, delegated his authority to them. And we haven't come all the way through that story yet, but most of you know where this will go, 11 of those disciples were men that the Spirit of God began to dwell in after Pentecost, and they really did alter the course of history. We've heard Jesus call out the self-righteous and call near the outliers and marginalized, and all of it really has been amazing news. He's commanded us to deny ourselves, to take up a cross and follow Him. He's predicted His sufferings, and now on the last day of this Holy Week, as we come to Mark 15, He's predicted the sufferings that He will endure and experience betrayal, condemnation, and injustice of the highest order. And even though He said it was coming, as it has unfolded over these last couple of chapters, we in this study have said to ourselves, this is astonishing news. And we've listened to the crowd seeing his hosannas at the beginning of this week and call for his crucifixion this very morning that Mark 15 records for us. And now for fear of the crowd, we watched just last Sunday, Pilate hand him over to the Roman battalion that he might be scourged and crucified. And we would say this is breathtaking news. But as we come now to Mark 15 verses 21 and following, I would want you not just to be in awe or to feel your breath taken from you once again, I would want you to be overwhelmed with the fact that this is life changing news. It's intended to transform you today from where you are at this very moment to that place that Jesus would want you to be. Some of you may have never come under the the personal power of Christ's rescue, the forgiveness of his sins, the gift of eternal life. This, this news is not just intended to, to alter your understanding of history, it's intended to alter you. So, follow along as I begin reading in Mark 15 21. The scriptures tell us that they compelled, that is, the soldiers, the Romans who were entrusted with leading Christ to Calvary. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, changing news. I want to break this passage down into three parts today. The first is that I I want each of us to set our hearts on this reality that Christ was undergoing a curse for us. Second, that Christ was abandoned by the Father for us. And third, that He died for us. Look again at the text in verse 21 and notice that he was cursed for us. It is the curse of physical suffering. Verses 21 and following reveal to us that he's so drained of strength at this point. They have scourged him and beaten him bloody near the point of death in in many ways. And as they would have strapped the crossbeam to his shoulders, commanded him to carry it all the way to Golgotha, he failed. His strength failed him. It's a reminder to us that he endured more than we can fathom. And then the text tells us that when they offered the sour wine to dull the pain of his suffering, he refused it. One author says, choosing to endure with full consciousness the sufferings appointed for him. He was taking the full force of this physical suffering, the result of all of our sins, taking it upon himself for you. It was not only physical suffering that he was cursed with, it was the curse of deepest personal shame. Look at verse 24. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Those few earthly possessions that were his are now taken by the soldiers through a quick gambling match. The the clothing that might have protected him from the shame and humiliation of the leering crowd is completely removed. Jesus takes upon himself that horrific exposure that every one of our sins produces. As it happened to Adam and Eve, so sin strips us bare and saddles us with guilt and shame that puts us on the run. We're all afraid of being exposed as we are for who we are. And that physical shame that Jesus was enduring at that moment is indicative of the deep spiritual shame that sin brings upon us. There's a great exchange underway here at this moment of His crucifixion. Jesus taking your shame and mine, bearing all of the brutal humiliation that we deserve for our sin, and in exchange, what do we receive? The scriptures tell us in other places that he actually clothes us with divine righteousness. Not our own righteousness. It's not clothing that we create by our obedience. It's not not clothing of righteousness that we create by our spiritual or religious commitment. It is strictly a gift of God for Christ's sake. But we are clothed with that perfect righteousness and need never fear exposure of this kind again. He is cursed with the deepest personal shame for you. Look at verse 26. For here, there is mention of a condemnatory sentence. Now, on the surface, it doesn't seem like a condemnable crime. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And, and remember, as we've discussed this in recent weeks, and by way of brief reminder, this, this inscription was, in fact, the charge. Uh, that was brought against him that resulted in his death. Historians tell us, and one has written, on the way to the execution site, a criminal wore or had carried before him a wooden board. Often it was whitened with chalk on which letters were written in ink or perhaps burned into the wood, but it specified the crime. And after the execution, the summary statement was fastened to the cross above the head of, of the crucified one. The notice attached to the cross on which the tortured body of Jesus hung bore in black or red letters on white ground the inscription, King of the Jews. It declared that Jesus had been sentenced to death as politically subversive of the authority of imperial Rome. But every one of us knows Jesus was anything but a political subversive. This, like all the other charges brought against him, were false trumped up. The life and ministry of Jesus the Christ was hardly a threat to Caesar in Rome in the way he was being crucified on that day. The Apostle Paul actually tells us that there is a greater, more horrific placard being nailed to the cross of Christ on that day. It is the placard of our sins. Are you familiar with Colossians 2? We've been here before, but let me remind you once again of the the words of the Apostle Paul. For he describes the condition of every single person before coming to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. And he writes, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is with Christ. Now listen to this. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, there was no physical placard on that day that had on its, uh, on its front inscribed, your sins and my sins, not on Golgotha. There was only one placard over Christ said that day physically, but there was a greater spiritual work where the handwriting, the, the record of debt that stood against us, as Paul st- says here, was in fact nailed to the cross. We've set our hearts on this profound thought on other occasions, but I tremble to think how, how, how big that placard would have to be just to catalog my sins Would it be a sheet of four-by-eight plywood? Mm, You might fit it on there if you wrote in microscopic font. And not just the size of the placard, but what would be recorded there for you, for me. You know, we don't need to, to, to catalog it specifically at this particular moment. We just need to rejoice in the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, a great spiritual work was taking place. And look at those words again. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands... And what would the legal demands have been? That God would condemn us forever. That we would die for our sins. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Oh, my friends, Jesus was taking that condemnatory sentence for you and for me. He took it in full. Here's the final part of the curse. It was a curse of corrupted association. Look at verse 27. Mark records that with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now, some of you, if you're looking at the ESV, might notice there's no verse 28 there. If you're reading the New American Standard, you see that in parentheses. Others of you may have a a variety of English translations, and some would say, what happened? Did they take out a verse? Well, you you realize we read in English, but Mark wrote in Greek. Isaiah and others wrote in Hebrew. Hebrew. Daniel wrote a little portion in Aramaic. I don't know any native Hebrew or Greek speakers or writers here today. How did did you get your English translation? Well, first of all, God was at work through 2,000 years making sure that copies of his word went into all kinds of languages, English being one. And when this process began, there were fewer copies, and over time, more and more copies were created, and remarkably, those copies are like 95% identical. But some of the copies that were used to, to produce English versions that included a verse 28 at one point uh, are newer, so to speak, than other copies that have been more recently found. And you know what? The older copies don't have that. You say, well, did... did Is there a conspiracy there? No. Do you know what we think? And this is a very reasonable conclusion. If you look at verse 28, what is it? It's a quotation of Isaiah, isn't it? And probably what happened in time is that somebody was reading this, made a a marginal note in their copy saying this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And then somebody else made a copy after that. I only pause for a moment so that none of you would lose faith in, like, what is somebody taking verses out of the Bible? Listen, we all want the most accurate English version of whatever God inspired the authors 2,000 years ago and beyond to write, don't we? So we look at this honestly, we look at it openly. And whether it remains or not the great truth of what Jesus is doing and the reality of what Isaiah had recorded 800 years or so before Mark wrote his gospel, it still stands. Jesus was, in fact, numbered among the transgressors as God ordained. And what Mark records here is that he hangs between two robbers. Now, we looked last week at that term robber as it was used in connection with Barabbas, and these are Barabbas' associates. And remember, we said these aren't guys who hold up a 7-Eleven for a little extra cash on a Saturday night. This is a term that speaks of outlaws. These are marauders. These are murdering rebels and insurrectionists. These are the most wicked criminals in Jerusalem. And that's exactly who Jesus is numbered with. So completely identifies with us in our sin that though sinless in his nature and blameless with respect to any crime or offense, he bears the full curse as if he were guilty of our sins. He took the ruin of your reputation and mine and owned it. If you think for a minute, his placard says, the king of the Jews, we have no idea what was on their placard, but I know some of you feel like you you walk around every day with a, a placard of your sins. You feel like this is some kind of glaring billboard of corruption and humiliation. You've tried to run from your reputation, try to reestablish it by your own means, but you still feel like there's a placard hanging around your neck on this day saying, look everyone, look at my sins, look at my offenses, look at my crimes against the most high God. My friend, can you see what Jesus is doing for you here? And by faith, leave the placard at the cross. Those things may be true about your past, but when Jesus took them and made them his own, he did so that they might never be returned to you. He's not only taking all of of the corruption of of this curse, all of the corrupted association that comes as a result of our sin and making it his own, he's actually trading that out for a, a new reputation for you. And to be in Christ, to be in faith, means that he takes all of your sin and all that he is, becomes yours by faith believe that there is no condemnation for you because jesus endured that curse look again at the text with me for here's the next part he was abandoned for you abandoned first in the first place to the verbal abuse of people that he created three terms that i want you to notice in the text here first verse 29 those who passed by derided him that's a term that actually just means to blaspheme specifically to charge him falsely or maliciously. They're attacking the good, holy, righteous name of Jesus. They're attacking his reputation. Look at what they say. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The attack is at his power and authority. You can't even do the things that you bragged about doing. Well, first of all, they missed completely what he said he would do because he is at this moment accomplishing all of it. But their attacks... are 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 directed at his heart his reputation the text also tells us in verse 31 they mocked him that is they they ridiculed him as a means of pleasure can you fathom this the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another saying he saved others he cannot save himself Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, trust me, they've seen plenty of miracles and have had plenty of opportunities to believe. Even if he had come down from the cross at that moment, they would not have believed. They're making a joke out of him. This kind of ridicule makes them feel better in this moment But what a dishonor it is to Jesus. The third word that I want you to take note of is in verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That is, they find fault with Jesus. And notice who it is. Here are men who are actually guilty, murdering outlaws, crucified justly, if you will. And they actually have the gall to insult Jesus. Again, there are actually two things happening on the cross at this moment. Jesus is bearing the attacks and ridicule and insults that you and I actually deserve for our sins. He's experiencing a kind of relational abandonment. And sin always brings separation and division into our relationships. But at the same time, He is establishing the eternal justification of His people. Do you know Romans 8, verse 1? This is a beautiful passage where Paul continues through the gospel and after considering what Christ has done in his life of obedience and his substitute death on the cross for us, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no insult or ridicule or accusation that could be brought against you as God's child, that would stick. Then he goes on in verse 33 to write, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And if you pause right there and think that the ones who were bringing charges against Christ were very powerful and influential people, chief priests, scribes. But the answer to this question is, it is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? And again, if you pause for a moment, some of you feel like there are plenty of people in the world who would condemn I've got family members or friends or former business partners or teachers or students. I mean, you start thinking of all the people who've suffered something as a result of your sin and, and probably a long line could begin to build of people who would condemn you. Yet, when those sins are taken by Jesus on the cross, made His very own, He forgives them completely and gifts you with this righteousness which is His. The reality is there is no condemnation that remains. And Paul's answer is, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he goes on to say, more than that, who was raised. As if somehow the the death of Christ might not be enough consolation for us, he marches us straight to the empty tomb and says, look, he came out of the grave. It's a sign that justification is real. And now he's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You have the ultimate advocate and lawyer in heaven who, who argues your case nobody's going to make a charge stick against you, even though you and I deserve the cross. Look at the text again. Verse 33 says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's not only verbal abuse that Jesus has been abandoned to, but he's abandoned to the visible sign of God's curse. Here's a little quick side note for you. In the plague of darkness, one author writes, which preceded the first Passover, remember, we're we're in Passover week, Right here, all the preparations are culminating on this day for the Jewish people, this day that Jesus is dying. In the plague of darkness which preceded the first Passover, darkness over the land was the token that the curse of God rested upon it, on Egypt. The darkness that envelops Jesus in his death thus makes visible what his cry of abandonment declares. Well, let's move quickly, because this is the great point, the most important one. He was abandoned to the eternal curse of our sin. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quotation from Psalm 22. You can read that psalm in its fullness later. It's hard for us to fathom what was really taking place, but let me just speak to it for a moment, that here, God the Father, who for eternity had been in perfect fellowship and relationship, a a loving union with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, each person in the Trinity is eternal. Not one of them has a beginning point, a starting point where they came into existence, but all three together have, have lived in this perfect union and fellowship, this loving relationship for all eternity. At this particular moment, as Jesus takes upon himself our sins, millions upon millions of, of sins and, and crimes against the Most High God committed through all the ages, by all the generations, as he takes those on himself and actually becomes sin for us, God the Father, who is holy and cannot bear to look upon sin, must turn his face away from the Son. Separation is created, and in that moment of excruciating suffering, perhaps the greatest point is that this relationship is broken, and the Son cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the sinless one? the one in whom is all your delight, the one who can say, I always do the will of the Father. And the answer is definitive and clear. It is crushing to us to consider that it's not for any crime that he had done. It is because of what we have done and what is placed upon him. Galatians 3 records the very simple but profound words of Paul As he was dying for me, he is opening the way to God by becoming a curse for us. But I do want you to know that by becoming a curse, he's opening a way directly to God. He is abandoned so that we might be brought near. We know from the other Gospels that what Jesus uttered as a loud cry at this particular moment was that little phrase, it is finished. It's actually one word in Greek. Now what was finished? Well, Mark gives us an indication. So look at Mark 15, verse 38. There's an important little conjunction there that you could almost be dismissive of. Verse 37 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You know what curtain he's talking about, don't you? If not, then just listen for a moment longer. For hundreds of years, a thick veil had hung in the temple separating everyone from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the central part of the temple. It's the place where God came to dwell. The Ark of the Covenant was there. It's sometimes referred to, at least a piece of it, as the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where God said to Moses hundreds of years before this, I will meet you there. And so once a year, just one time a year, The high priest was authorized, commanded by God to enter the Holy of Holies and he would bring the blood of the specific sacrifice Uh, on the Day of Atonement, and he would offer that sacrifice in a prescribed way, and then blood of of that sacrifice would actually be sprinkled upon the mercy seat as a sign that God's wrath had been appeased, that the just requirements against sin had been fulfilled, and that God was no longer angry with the people, uh, that they were no longer in danger of being destroyed, but that God was at peace with them. And so the priest would enter and he would perform this very sacred ritual, and then he would exit, and the people would see the, the high priest as the visible sign that God's wrath has been appeased, sin has been atoned for, forgiveness has been made, and, and they would all breathe a sigh of relief. Well, Hebrews ten twenty tells us, and Andrew read this at the outset of the service, that Jesus was opening a new and living way for us that is he was creating direct access into the presence of God for everyone not just a high priest not not just a priest class of people on planet earth but for everyone direct access to God himself and so when Jesus cries from the cross it is finished at that very moment that temple veil that separated people like you and me from the presence of God is torn not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, which says this is a divine thing. And it's not just that the presence of God is visible in that physical place. Because actually, God had left the temple many, many years before. You have to read about that in the Old Testament. But but it is a visible sign that sinners have been reconciled to God. The sacrifice has been offered and accepted. Atonement is made. Forgiveness is secured. The wrath of God has been appeased. Salvation has been won. Come near, sinners. And as we sang just a few minutes ago, finished is the victory cry. No one else but the Son of God could declare such a victory. He's opening the way to God, but he's also exercising his divine authority. Look at the end of verse 38. He breathed his last, or or in verse 38, and then notice in 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This centurion had not only followed this legal procedure from Pilate's hall's all the way to Calvary, and witnessed every aspect of this trial, condemnation, and now execution. He probably was a veteran, unfortunately. Seen many victims of crucifixion, knew that, that typically a victim of crucifixion dies by asphyxiation. They, they weaken to the point where they cannot pull themselves up any longer to draw a breath, and they suffocate to death. But here, this man, though suffering to an extent that few have ever known, he has the strength to cry with a loud voice, it is finished, and then apparently of his own will, exhale that final breath. And so amazed was the centurion that he said, there's no other conclusion for us to reach at this point than that he is the Son of God. Now, it's particularly interesting in its context because in Rome... They use similar terminology for Caesar. And only he could be worshipped by his constituency as the son of God. But here's a Roman centurion, and I wonder if he just breathed it out uh, loudly enough for those immediately around him. Maybe it was quieter, maybe it was louder, I don't know. But I I think to myself, it, it is sweetly, wonderfully ironic that he, a Roman soldier, would testify, this is the Son of God. It's not Caesar. It's not the emperor. And you know what? Mark was also writing to believers a couple of decades after this event. Many of them lived in Rome, were suffering under the the brutal dictatorship of a Caesar, wondering, God, where are you probably? Is this this season of life and difficulty going to end? And here they read Mark's account of the gospel and have to be impressed. This is the Son of God. And this truth is the news that needs to overwhelm our hearts. He's the Son of God today as much as He was 2,000 years ago. He's the King as much today as He was 2,000 years ago. The human circumstances of that moment seemed like the great hero Jesus had, had squandered His life and opportunity as if all would be lost. Even in the concluding remarks of Mark 16 that we'll get to next week, you will see that there is uh, an unreal, awesome hope in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for people like us. Don't be fooled by the headlines. The powerful news today is not that COVID continues or that the presidential primaries are a wreck or that the economy is in turmoil. The eternally unchangeable, life-altering headline news that we need to be paying attention to is that jesus christ is the son of god and you say so so what do we do with this today i'm going to give you four quick things as we conclude i changed the background on the slide because i i've used this image before it's powerful to me and i hope it'll be powerful to you i want you to just look at the shadow of the cross there are many things in our world today that cast a shadow covid casts a shadow politics casts a shadow Uh, economic pressures and responsibility they all cast their shadow but there's no shadow being cast across planet earth of greater significance or importance than the cross and everything we are and everything we do needs to be interpreted and practiced and understood in light of the cross so here are four practical things first of all believe it live in faith Jesus is the Christ the son of God not just a great religious figure who had a few helpful things to say, and if you take his principles and apply them to your family or your business, then maybe life will go better. No, he's Lord. Believe it. Live in faith. Secondly, live in gratitude. He really did take your sin. As I said a little while ago, some of you feel like you're just always going to have that placard of your sins hanging around your neck. No, not if you're in Christ. It doesn't exist right now. You may think it does. You may try to hang one around your neck, but stop it. Live in gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, and I think back on my sin. I'm so embarrassed, humiliated, ashamed, and I even have these feelings of guilt returned, but I look to the cross and I realize condemnation is gone, guilt removed, forgiveness is mine. That, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say live in gratitude. It's real. Number three, live in peace. Go back to Romans 5 and read that being justified by his grace... We have peace with God. And that's not just a warm feeling inside, like, yeah, life is good. No, that means that God has reset your world and made it whole. It doesn't seem like it when we look at our world with these eyes, does it? It doesn't feel like it when we look at our bank account sometimes. But you step back from those immediate circumstances, and you look at the eternal picture, and you read the eternal, unchangeable headlines, God says... I'm at peace with you because of Jesus. So live in peace. And then finally, live in hope. And the Christian's hope, remember, is very different from the the non-believer. Christian hope, as as we've talked about it, and and I'll just describe it for you again, hope, biblically speaking, is the confident expectation that good is coming. The confident expectation that good is coming. How can we be confident? Well, for starters, there's a cross that casts a really big shadow over all of us. Everything we've just, talked of, we've just talked about is true. There's also an empty tomb that signals that resurrection has begun. The kingdom has come near. God's work is going forward. The, the gospel is advancing through nations and communities and households. A confident expectation That this Son of God, this Christ, is doing all that He promised to do. Oh, I want Him to come today. I'm just, I'm tired of the headlines that appear on my newsfeed. But then I come back and I say, This is the headline I never tire of. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, give us grace to believe all that you have promised. And we ask that the realities of the cross, the curse that was ours, Jesus took upon himself, the abandonment he experienced, we deserve that, but you gave it to him so that we might be brought near. The death that he died, oh, it was ours. But now, because he died, we may live forever. Thank you. Thank you. Would you, by your spirit, seal this word, this gospel to our hearts? Would you give us perspective on the current headlines, the current situations? Would you bring your powerful truth to bear upon our lives and change us in the way we think, the way we live, the way we speak, the way we plan? Oh, Lord God, change us to be like Jesus. Father, thank you for the good news. Give us grace to believe it, to live it. Give us grace to live in the peace that you have brought through Christ. And may your hope, that confident expectation for good, just shape our, our thoughts, our attitudes, even our actions. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.